titled this morning's sermon, Where Strange Doctrines Begin the Gospel, because one of the most uh, attacked areas of Christian doctrine that Satan goes after is the gospel. If he can keep your soul out of heaven, if he can keep you on that broad path to destruction, uh, he thinks he will have won, when in all reality you are losing out, of course. Uh, but the gospel is key and is what is important for us uh, in our salvation and in our sanctification. So the subtitle would be, therefore, make sure that your testimony is rooted in sound words, even as we consider Paul's testimony this morning. Up in verse 3, we see the Apostle Paul has departed from Macedonia, having urged the young shepherd Timothy to remain on at Ephesus and primarily instruct certain men that have infiltrated the church, likely even among the elder leadership, and who are teaching strange doctrines, heresies, and error. And when these creep into the evangelical church, it's usually done so by people inaccurately handling the Word of God. It doesn't come in by a direct denial, per se, of God's truth. Rather, it comes in through teachers who claim to be explaining the Word of God more clearly, or showing how it is more relevant, or more applicable, or more practical, or more pragmatic. But in reality, they are denying God's power. Paul later writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 19, that inaccurate handling of the word of truth leads the church's ruin, lead to, leads to the church's ruin, and further ungodliness as false teaching spreads like cancer. Knowing this, Paul tells Timothy in verse 4 of 1 Timothy 1 that these strange doctrines, these myths, these endless genealogies must be addressed with sound teaching that is healthy instruction according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. False teaching must be stopped for a church to continue as a faithful testimony for Jesus Christ. Consider what Christ warned the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Uh, Repent and turn, or I will come and remove my lampstand. Your light will go out. Churches do fail for a lack of fidelity to the scripture, to Christ, to the living word of God. One pastor says a common way the gospel is altered is to downplay sin. With pressure for church growth, a reigning philosophy among church leaders is that people will not go to church to hear negative things or to hear that what is wrong with them. Surely the thinking goes they will not come to church to hear that they are lost and going to hell. The problem with this philosophy is that people are encouraged to come to church to hear what men have to say, not what God has to say. The thinking goes that winsome methods may be used if people are uh, going to come to church, and especially if they're going to accept the gospel. If people do not come to church to hear what God has to say, then why are you coming to church? Why go to church at all? If God has not spoken or if what he has said is not useful, then what gospel message is worthy of my faith? The one that comes through the Bible or the one that stems from the cleverness of man. The gospel, the good news, is the message concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ, his incarnation, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection, to atone for mankind's sin and guilt before God. In contrast, consider today's popular churches that adjust this message to speak about Christ's purpose of bringing personal fulfillment and satisfaction to those living unhappy, problem-filled lives. People are encouraged to come to Christ because he'll solve you their problems and bring meaning and purpose to their lives. Charles Spurgeon rightly said of these men, a time will come when instead of shepherds feeding the sheep, the church will have clowns entertaining the goats. 
like evangelical churches, seeker churches, as they might be known today. They claim to believe the Bible and preach that salvation is by faith in Christ. They sound good on the surface. Yet these seeker churches focus on being attractive and inviting to people who are not saved or the unchurched, as they call them. One author states, in some seeker churches introduced seekers to the Christian message by presenting the exclusivist theology of evangelicalism. They maintain an exclusive theology that Jesus Christ is the only Savior. But they do so in the friendly guise of an egalitarian, fulfillment-enhancing, fun, religious encounter with God. As a result, seeker church pastors make orthodox, the orthodox theology less offensive and more civil for a, for a pluralistic society. Seeker church proponents do not abandon the gospel truth, but repackage it in a kinder and gentler format. They maintain the evangelical emphasis on the importance of faith in Jesus Christ, but they subtly transform the reasons why one should pursue such a faith. Rather than warning the unrepentant about the damnation awaiting their soul, they proclaim the riches of knowing Jesus now and on into eternity. The promise of this worldly peace and fulfillment supplements, perhaps even supersedes, the eternal consequences of one's personal response to Christ. As one pastor of a church in Georgia puts it, we are not at all hesitant to say what you really need to live life to the fullest is a relationship with Jesus Christ. We don't back off that at all, even in our Sunday morning services. The author of this book observes that not backing off at all now means that seeker churches will not hesitate to proclaim that life without Jesus Christ is not fulfilling. They've dumbed it down. Now, even as I read that, some of you may be thinking, this all sounds right and good so far. What's wrong with what he says? Yet that is the problem with heresies in their infancy. They have a strong element of truth. It is true that there is fulfillment in Christ. There is peace and joy and happiness in Christ. But that's not the basic issue addressed in the gospel. False teachers take biblical truth. They distort it. They subtly shift it from a proper biblical balance and perspective. They adjust it to meet the people's felt needs, to give them what they want to tickle their ears. They just want fulfilled lives. They want to be happy. They don't want grief. They don't want pain or difficulty. They want everything to go well. And so the churches and the preachers give them that and tell them that Jesus Christ will bring you happiness. He'll bring you joy. He will make your life meaningful. Jesus Christ will solve your prob the problems in your marriage, the problems with your finances, the problems with raising teenagers, problems with sleeping well, and on they go. All these personal, satisfying goals that you may have, you will find fulfillment in Christ, so they say. In all of that, we do find an element of truth. Jesus did say, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. While that is true, that's not the heart of the gospel message. The primary issue addressed by the gospel is that you cannot be saved from the penalty, power, or presence of sin apart from grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. When we shy away from confronting the issue of sin, we fail to present the Jesus Christ of the Bible and the real purpose for which he came to this earth. It is possible that even here at GCF, we may have folks who come or are coming to place their faith in Christ because they want a better life. We, too, could fall into the trap of preaching a variation or a form of the health and wealth gospel. Now, we are surely not quite as far down the road as some of the health and wealth preachers out there. We might pride ourselves in 
being not that far down the road, yet we could be on the same road. They say, come to Christ. He guarantees you won't be sick. Come to Christ. He wants you rich to have all the good things of this material world. And now we correctly say that is an absolute distortion of the gospel. But we too are in danger of being just a few miles back on the same road, preaching the same subtle message as seeker churches in our own city. This is the same sort of false teaching about which Paul writes and instructs Timothy at Ephesus in this letter. False teaching that must be stopped for a church to continue as a faithful testimony for Jesus Christ. The heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ is found in these nine words in verse 15 of our passage this morning. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is the central message of the Apostle Paul's testimony laid out for us in these verses this morning. I'll say you have not preached Jesus Christ, you have not preached the gospel, if you have not presented the issue of every person's sin and guilt before God. Every faithful church must speak about sin and God's provision to address its presence and power and the eternal penalty for each individual's guilt before a holy God. Is Grace Community Fellowship bold to proclaim, even in our Christmas messages when we want to gather in a warm place around the baby Jesus being born, that this precious Emmanuel was born to save sinners just like you and I? Because we can talk about the Bible, most of the cults do, and not really grapple with the central issue of the gospel, the primary reason for the Son of God being born in Bethlehem, to save sinners. At Ephesus, false teachers had come in, claiming to believe the gospel, but they were also teaching that you must understand how to apply more of the word of God than just the basic facts of Jesus Christ as taught through the apostolic authorities. The claim that you must understand the Mosaic law and see that it too is part of your salvation and vital for your sanctification. They were not denying the word of God. They were not bringing material outside of the word of God into the church. They were simply saying, you ought to take all of Scripture, which is God-breathed and profitable, right? Including the law given through Moses and mix it with the gospel of grace through faith in Christ. Add in the law and you can have a full life. Then you can be everything God wants you to be and have all he wants you to have. Just believe in Jesus as the Messiah of Israel, Savior of the world, and you also must faithfully keep the Mosaic law. They just want people to obey the Bible. Is that so wrong? What did Paul write to the Corinthians? 1 Corinthians 2, 2. Paul determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Again, in Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9, Paul writes he was, uh, how he was amazed that they were so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. It's not even a, the gospel. It isn't even good news. Only there are some who are disturbing you and wanting to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be condemned to hell. Strong words that he used in Galatians. He continues in chapter 3, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? We must be careful to not just talk about and use the Scriptures and use words that come from them. We must live by them. 
specifically 2 Timothy 2.15, where Paul challenges Timothy in a later letter to be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately, rightly dividing the word of truth. As Ronaldo clearly preached over verses 8 and 9 last week, the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person. The Mosaic law can only reveal the sinfulness of the sinner's sin and put restraints on sin for the nation Israel. The Mosaic law was never, has never been either a way of salvation or part of what is necessary for our sanctification as the bride of Christ today. And he concluded in verse 11, all this is according to the glorious gospel which brings glory to God. When we have a proper understanding of the word of God and preach the gospel as it is, then the rest of scripture fits in its proper place and brings glory to God. It's not a peripheral issue. It's not dividing the fine frog hairs of doctrine. We are talking about the gospel that brings glory to God. And what is the chief end of man? To glorify God. Paul says in verse 11, I have been entrusted with this gospel. That the almighty creator God of the universe would declare Paul trustworthy to bear witness of this gospel to the nations moves him to write verses 12 through 17, sharing his living testimony and showing that nothing but the gospel brings salvation to the worst of sinners. Look at verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Christ Jesus, our Lord. Scripture is saturated, emphasizing Jesus, Christ, is God as well as man. Who strengthened Paul? The Lord Jesus Christ. Who put him into service? Who entrusted him with the gospel? None other than the Lord Jesus Christ, doing what only God can do. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's not just the passages that directly speak of the deity of Jesus Christ, giving evidence that Jesus is God as well as man, but passages even like this, where Jesus Christ is doing what only God can do, exercising prerogatives that God reserves for himself. Christ Jesus, our Lord, who strengthened me, he empowered, he enabled the Apostle Paul. With gratitude, Paul highlights his own weakness. I needed to be empowered and strengthened. I, I was weak. And he talks about the strength of God and his work placing Paul into service. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, in a similar context as we have in 1 Timothy 1, Paul is explaining the difference between the Mosaic law, that covenant given through Moses, uh, called the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, that covenant that came into existence through Christ Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, fulfilling the promise given to Abraham, developed by Ezekiel, Jeremiah, all throughout the Old Testament. When you talk about the proclamation of the gospel, which is really at the heart of the New Covenant, that is the death and resurrection of Christ, to pay the penalty for sinners, Paul proclaims his own inadequacy for such a mission. What does he say in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6? Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The letter is the Mosaic law, and Paul is not talking about getting mired down in the details of Scripture. He's talking about the Mosaic law, how it kills Continues in verse 7, that if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones, he's referencing the law being given to Moses. 
God engraved on the tablets of stone in letters, the Ten Commandments, which were a summary of the law given to Moses. Yet the law could only condemn people. It couldn't bring salvation. As Paul details in Romans 7, the law was good, but I am not. So it wasn't the power of Paul's personality, his unique background or education that prepared and enabled him for the ministry. It was the sovereign grace of God who has made Paul adequate. Paul hadn't lost sight of the reason for his adequacy, his empowerment and enablement to serve the living God and proclaim the truth. It was the grace of God. Come back to verse 2 and we see that he strengthened me because he considered me faithful. Christ Jesus did not look at Paul and find a faithful man to put into service. There is a play on words here. He considered me faithful is the same basic word translated entrusted at the end of verse 11. Paul had been entrusted with the glorious gospel because God considered him trustworthy. Christ Jesus entrusted Paul with the gospel having drafted Paul into his service and strengthened him to accomplish this ministry as a trustworthy servant, putting me into service. Paul didn't have an elevated view of himself. He could declare his apostleship as he did above in verse 1 because he had the authority bestowed upon him from Christ himself. Yet Paul never lost sight of the fact that he is a servant, a servant who has been appointed into service. We get the word deacon from this word translated service. It simply means to be a servant. Paul, a servant of the Most High God. Paul has been put into the service of the Lord, his servant at work for his master, Jesus Christ. But now listen to the contrast in verse 13. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Here's the unimaginable thing about Paul's testimony, what he used to be, even though he was the worst kind of person, the vilest of sinners. I was formerly a blasphemer, speaking against Christ the worst things about Christ, and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. One commentator describes this as one who in pride and insolence deliberately and contemptuously mistreats, wrongs, and hurts another person just to hurt and deliberately humiliate the person. It speaks of treatment which is calculated to publicly insult and to openly humiliate the person who suffers it. That was Paul humiliating, putting people in prison. Romans 1 Verses 29 to 32 is an apt description of Saul prior to being converted to Paul, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, senseless, untrustworthy, faithless, unloving, heartless, unmerciful, ruthless. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. This was the Saul standing by at the stoning of Stephen, who was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, who was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. The book of Acts relates how Paul persecuted the church, putting believers to death, casting men and women alike into prison. He did all he could to destroy those who bore a faithful testimony for Christ. 
He did the worst of things, attempting to destroy the church, put a stop to the gospel proclamation. Here is a man of most despicable character, the vilest of people whom Christ strengthened into his service, making Paul one entrusted with the gospel. How unbelievable is that? Remember, when Paul got saved in Acts 9, believers in the church would have had nothing to do with him, thinking it impossible that Saul has gotten saved. They're like checking your news on your phone after the service, of course. And finding that the most active, dictatorial, murderous tyrant of our day has converted to faith in Jesus and renounced his former life of genocide against believers in Christ. No way. Here's a man attempting to destroy the faith, coming to a church where they've lost friends and family to prison, perhaps even death, and you want me to believe that he has been redeemed? Yeah, right. Paul's conversion was so unbelievable that Barnabas had to intervene before the church could even begin to believe that Paul had gotten saved. Unlike you and I, Paul seems to have maintained a constant wonder of his redemption. At times after our initial euphoria of being saved with the passing of time, we develop a self-righteous veneer as though we are better than those dirty sinners out there. We forget 1 Corinthians 6.11, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified by the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the spirit of our God. Paul retained a very conscious memory that he was the dirtiest of sinners. The only difference being that he is now the redeemed dirtiest of sinners. Yet Paul didn't get mired down in the past. He didn't say, you know, I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, I was a violent aggressor, but oh, I just can't get over the past. I just don't know how to learn to forgive myself. Oh, for the life of endless therapy. Instead, Paul recognizes the historical facts, acknowledges them, and he understands that that was not the end of the story. Christ did not leave him in such a repulsive state. How's this verse continue on? Yet I was shown mercy. Of course, that's what Paul did, but he received mercy. Even addressing the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 25, he writes, As one who, by the mercy of the Lord, is trustworthy. It was God's mercy bestowed upon Paul that turned him from being a blaspheming, pursuing as a hunter, persecutor, a sadistic and violent aggressor, to a humble servant redeemed and counted as trustworthy to carry and testify of the gospel to the world as a constant servant. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul's not making excuses for his sin by claiming ignorance and therefore not actually being accountable for such vile sin. Paul is likely encouraging Timothy to deal with the Judaizers at Ephesus, those who would regularly misuse the Old Testament law of Moses in Numbers 15, we find a distinction made between those who sinned in ignorance and those who sinned willfully or with a high hand, depending on your translation. And note that even those who sinned unintentionally still need atonement, as you read Numbers 15. They need forgiveness. They needed a sacrifice to provide for their unintentional sin. They were still guilty. It simply means there's a possibility of being forgiven. In contrast, for the intentional, willful, high-handed sins, there is no forgiveness. 
In Numbers 15, verse 22, But when you unwittingly fail and do not observe all these commandments. Verse 24, Then it shall be if it is done unintentionally. And then he gives instructions in the kind of offerings that have to be made for the unintentional sin. In verse 25, And they will be forgiven, for it was an error. In verse 27, If one person sins unintentionally. In verse 28, For the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. Forgiveness was available. Then note in contrast, Numbers 15, verse 30, but the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is a native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord. That person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. There's no sacrifice offered for his sin. Stop in Acts 3 if you've turned to Numbers. Come back to Acts chapter 3 on your way to 1 Timothy. And remember that the writer of Hebrews addressing Jews who are under the influence again of Jewish teachers, trying to lure them away from devotion to Christ and an emphasis on salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, over to a mixture of the law and Christ. One of the five warning passages in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 26 through 29, says, If we go on sinning willfully, making allowance for sin, that is, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is no longer, uh, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, his shed blood upon the cross, and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. There is a sin for which there is no forgiveness. False teachers are served a notice for claiming to understand and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ while actually speaking against it, corrupting it, and undermining it. And this is a serious matter we see today. People from people who claim to know the truth, false teachers, they start cults or sects through a distortion of the scripture. And rarely, if ever, have you read of those cult leaders getting saved. Why? They've sinned defiantly. They have taken the knowledge of the truth, examined it, claimed to believe it, but then corrupted it. And if they persist in this, there is no forgiveness for their sins. In contrast, Paul was in the ignorance of unbelief, as we see in 1 Timothy, when he did the terrible things he did. He made no profession to understand the gospel or believe the truth concerning Christ, as false teachers were doing here in Ephesus. Paul did not bear the same guilt. Instead, he was a stupid, dumb, blinded by unbelief sinner. Because of his ignorance, God was able to justly forgive Paul. I mentioned Acts chapter 3. When we speak about sinning intentionally or unintentionally, sinning in ignorance or defiantly, you understand the New Testament Jews would understand and latch on to this idea and understanding and remembering Numbers chapter 15. So in Acts 3, Peter used it in his second sermon to address the Jews again on the temple grounds with the gospel in verse 14 and following, but you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life. You come down to verse 17, and now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. And what does verse 19 say? Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. The Jews would understand, thinking that they might have no hope for salvation, having crucified the Son of God, their Messiah of Israel, that they may be lost forever. 
But Paul extends the hope of the gospel. Brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance. Numbers 15 applies to you. Repent. There is forgiveness for the worst of sinners, yet do not become like those who take the knowledge of the truth and continue to defile, corrupt, and sin against it, for which there is no forgiveness. Consider what Christ himself prayed in the book of Luke, chapter 23, as he's on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. The nation was in ignorance. They didn't know that Jesus was their Messiah who had come to deliver them. And even in that act on the cross, he was delivering them from their greatest need. So you leave Acts chapter 3 and come back to 1 Timothy. You and I are not able to make the same distinctions as Christ, even Paul or Peter. We don't know who God will save or not. If we were living in the days of Paul and as he was persecuting the church, we would have thought he's not a candidate. Yet God saved him by grace. Only God knows the heart. Only God knows who has sinned defiantly. So as those entrusted with the completed scriptures, let us be ever so careful with a proper fear before the Lord to handle accurately the word of truth, lest any one of us be found distorting or corrupting the word of truth. So now Paul, after speaking of the abundance of his sin as a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, he expands on being shown mercy from verse 13 and continues in verse 14. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. The grace of our Lord was more abundant, more than sufficient, more than adequate. Paul wrote in Romans 5 verse 20, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And grace came along with what? With the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Paul's former life was characterized by unbelief and hatred. Now in Christ, he has the genuine, sincere faith and that love, which is the goal of the command that he's given up in verse 5. Grace doesn't come alone. Grace does marvelous things. Second Corinthians 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things... They have passed away. Behold, new things have come. God's superabundant grace totally transformed the Apostle Paul so that he who formerly persecuted the church now preaches the very faith and love that he formerly tried to destroy. Today, the gospel is being watered down to diminish any contrast or difference between the saved and the unsaved. There doesn't have to really be a change in your life. They downplay any transformation of life. That really must necessarily take place if you are truly saved. Why? Why do they do that? Cowardice, pride, any number of reasons. But the eternal salvation and a changed life through progressive sanctification is only obtainable by the superabundant grace of our Lord with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. But why did Paul require faith and love in Christ? Because as the worst of sinners... For Paul to receive mercy and superabundant grace, he must receive the salvation offered through the person and work of Jesus Christ, who came into the world to save sinners. And we come to the heart of the gospel message that must be a part of every gospel presentation, even in your sharing of your testimony with your neighbors. Verse 15, it is a trustworthy statement, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. Of all, It is a trustworthy statement. Occurs five times in the New Testament. And all five times are in the pastoral epistles. 
This is a saying that goes without question. This is what it's all about. Paul adds here, as he does on another occasion, deserving full acceptance. The following trustworthy statement must be accepted by all. And what is it? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Understand this. You cannot talk about Jesus Christ and his purpose for coming to this earth if you don't talk about sin. There is blessedness to the one who is saved. There is joy. There is peace. They are the fruits of the Holy Spirit. But you understand that the message of Christ is one of addressing the sinfulness of a sinner's sin. Some of you may have heard Vodi Bauckham speak of this fictitious 11th commandment, Thou shalt be nice, where the church seems to think that the condemning 10 commandments, they don't exist, we can ignore those. There's only one commandment worthy of my concern, Thou shalt be nice, I shall be seen as being nice. This is defined as anything weak, soft, mealy-mouthed, afraid, cowardly, and to be confrontational, to dare say that someone is wrong is not accepted. Today's zeitgeist is to be offended, even on the behalf of others, by the confrontational reading of each and every one of the sins listed by Paul above in verses 9 and 10, without regard for or even a concern about how those sins offend the God of the Bible more than them being confronted with their sin and being offended. We don't want to be viewed as condemning or judgmental. Yet, my brethren, I tell you again, the message of Christ is a condemning message. We must not shy away. We must hold fast to proclaiming the gospel in all its purity because that is what produces the results of a transformed life that God intends as he imparts his nature to those who believe and recreates them in his image. The true gospel is indeed a message of judgment. All the condemnation and judgment that was due me for my sin has fallen upon the Son of God to pay the penalty for my sin. There is no way to share the gospel outside the context of sin and judgment and condemnation. What in the world is the Son of God doing on the cross? He wanted you to be happy and free of life's difficulties and unpleasant things? That's every bit as much of a corruption of the gospel as that which is peddled by the false teaching that we hear today. No one actually believes or lives as a purely tolerant pluralist where they never say anything against or hold their own views as higher or better than anyone else's views. No one lives like that in any meaningful area of their lives. Take driving, for example. Do we truly live in a pluralistic and drive in a pluralistic way? I don't want to say it's worse to go through a red light than it is to go through a green light. Heaven forbid, I'd be judgmental. If you go through red lights as well as green lights, that's not necessarily better than stopping at the red ones and going through the green ones. You know, I'm not a judgmental person. You have your convictions, I have mine. You do you. Do we actually live that way? Absolutely not. It's absurd. But we come to Scripture, and we're afraid to stand alone on the Word of God. We sung it as kids. We grew up to be adults, and we're like, eh, I don't know if I want to talk about my neighbor's sin. Talk about your own sin. Start there. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you cannot be a true pluralist. We cannot be tolerant of or ignore sin. Christ Jesus came into the world. Why? To save sinners. That's why the good news is bad news. The bad news is actually good news. 
He has emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? To save sinners. No one is ever genuinely saved who does not come to face the reality of their own sin and guilt. Today, there are multitudes of people making decisions for Christ, placing their faith in Christ, who have not really dealt with the issue of their own personal sin and guilt. They come for the free candy, the free gift, 100,000 egg drop. Oh, peace and doing for a better life? I'll take it. But Jesus Christ is not an aspirin for your temporary pain. He is the cure for sin. That's why coming to Christ is a humbling experience. You cannot come with any part of your pride intact. You come recognizing, I am a sinner. I am worthy of condemnation. I am deserving of hell. I am without hope. I am without resources. All I can do is cast myself on His mercy and believe Him to do what otherwise cannot be done on my own. When preparing for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem, an angel appeared to Joseph. Matthew 1.21, and he said what? You shall call his name Jesus, Jehovah Savior, for he will save his people from the Romans. He will save his people from their sins. Jesus himself said in Luke 19, verse 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. The book of Romans being that masterful development in detail of the gospel, where through the direction of the Spirit, Paul, for the bulk of the first three chapters, writes about what? Sin. 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 Condemnation. Judgment. He can't get to the gospels, the gospel and good news in chapters 4, 5, and following without talking about these things. We can't talk about the righteousness of Christ. We can't talk about living a sanctified life until we've come to the issue of sin, dealt with sin, and confronted sin. Paul leaves no room for anyone to squeeze by the issue of their personal sin as an affront to God's glory. Now consider some of Paul's statements out of the opening chapters of Romans. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. For we have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God demonstrates His own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The overflowing emphasis of Scripture is that we are sinners. It's the whole emphasis of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Every time they brought a sacrifice, what were they proclaiming? Sinner in need of blood shed. Sinner in need of shed blood. Sinner, you need a substitute. Continual, ongoing sacrifices. A substitute, shed blood for their sin. Someone must pay your penalty. And the penalty is death. Laying their hand on the sacrifice, take my sin. Be the substitute. Yes, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world has come, yet the message has not changed. Have you been forgiven your sin, which will send you to an eternal hell? That's the message that's been proclaimed from the beginning even to today. Look at what Paul writes at the end of verse 15 in 1 Timothy. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost 
of all. There is much debate on whether this is an actual factual statement or if Paul is just expressing his opinion. But either way, here it is. Paul reflects on the life he's lived, knowing what he has done and how he has sinned against the grace of God and yet been forgiven. All he could say, the only thing he could say, is that he was the worst of sinners. Think of the worst sinner you know, and Paul has worsted him. Note the present tense that he uses. The I am, not I was. Consider the ridiculous theology of some where Christians supposedly shouldn't talk about themselves as sinners. Poor Paul wasn't enlightened as some of the people today. He said, I am the worst. The difference is that I am the redeemed worst of sinners, as I said earlier. Paul is a redeemed sinner, a true child of God, by the grace of God, a servant of the living God because of God's mercy. May you and I maintain such a refined perspective of ourselves. I may be the worst sinner, but God's grace has redeemed me the foremost of all. Let us not lose sight of where we have come from. Verse 16, yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. For this reason I found mercy, Here we are again. You understand, Paul was a very religious man. Consider his testimony in Philippians 3, verses 6 and following. As to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, garbage, refuse, So that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. We continue in 1 Timothy 1 verse 16, so that in me... As the foremost, as the worst sinner, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example of those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul's life is a shining example how God's patience can demonstrate infinite mercy and result in the salvation of the worst of sinners to become a servant of the living God by mercy and grace. That should be an encouragement to all that no one is beyond hope. His grace is super abundant. You too can be saved. Isn't that a glorious message? Why would we want to change it? Why do we think, you know, they don't really want to hear this or that. They don't want to talk about sin. They might come and be offended. There is no salvation with your pride intact. There is no salvation on your terms or on my terms. There is no salvation for those who do not come to recognize their lost, sinful condition. There's nothing we can do. It takes Christ Jesus coming into the world to save sinners. I don't necessarily want to make you happier with a false assurance of faith and a false gospel. You're a sinner. In and of and by yourself, your situation is hopeless and you are helpless. There is nothing you can do to make yourself acceptable before God. All you can do is cast yourself on His mercy. Lord, 
I am hopeless and helpless. I've sinned. I am one of those who have sinned and come short of your glory, and the wages of sin is death. God, I believe your promise that you so love the world that you gave your only begotten Son in order that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son of God shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Lord, I don't have your Son. I am deserving of your wrath. Save me. I don't know whether your life will feel better or not when you come to Christ. I don't know whether things will get easier or harder. I don't know whether you'll get a better job or get fired. I don't know if you'll be healthier or you'll be diagnosed with terminal cancer next week. All I can tell you is that in Jesus Christ, you can find forgiveness in your sin. Forgiveness for your sin. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What more can Paul say after this? Verse 17. Now to the King eternal, King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. He breaks out into a doxology of worship. What more can I do but worship Him? There's nothing more to say about the living God who saves sinners. All the glory goes to God. It's not for me. It's not for you. It's not that we might look better or, or be better per se, but that we might be acceptable before a holy God who is eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. Be honor and glory forever. The end goal is not to make people feel good or put band-aids on your severed leg this is the eternal god who offers a complete forgiveness of sin who snatches sinners from the jaws of hell setting them on a course to be once and for all cleansed from sin after being glorified in heaven. Isn't that our hope? That someday I will finally be set free from this body of death. What else can we say about such a God? All we can do is declare His praise and adoration and worship Him. That is the eternal gospel that is proclaimed in Revelation 14, verse 7. You recall the angel who comes down out of heaven, standing in mid-heaven, and what does he proclaim? The eternal gospel. Fear God. Give Him glory. Because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. That's the gospel. Fear God. Give Him glory. Worship Him. That's the gospel. Fear God. Recognize you're a sinner before a holy God. Fear Him. Give Him glory. Repent. Confess. And agree, give glory by confessing, yes, indeed, you are sinful, and God is holy, and worship Him. Lord, take my life and let it be all and only for Thee. As Jesus closed out His earthly ministry after having been raised from the dead, He meets with His disciples in Luke chapter 24, verses 46 and following, saying, Thus it is written that the Messiah would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins 
would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. That is the reason for his coming to earth. That's the reason for his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. So that you and I today could preach forgiveness of sins in his name to everyone. You cannot proclaim forgiveness of sins if you don't proclaim the message of sin and guilt. We must refocus, clear the table, push aside all the rubbish, come back to the scripture. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, Paul writes to Timothy the theme verse, if you will, of this book so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God which is the church of the living God the pillar and support of the truth a church fails to continue as a pillar and a support of the truth if it is not proclaiming this foundational purpose for Christ's coming into the world for Christ's death and resurrection for the proclamation of forgiveness yes to save sinners. Have you come to understand that you are one of those sinners? That's the issue that must be dealt with. Before you die and stand before God, please come to the realization of your sinfulness and need of a Savior. Have you believed the message of Jesus Christ? That He came into the world to pay the penalty for your sin. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for a gospel that truly is good news. It is great news. Lord, keep us from failing to appreciate that the message of sin is necessary. That Christ came to pay the penalty for sin. He came to save sinners. May you find us faithfully verbalizing the sinfulness of every single human being. Not because we're mired down in the despair of sin, but because we have a message of hope for sinners. The testimony that has so changed and transformed lives for centuries that I am but a filthy, vile, undeserving sinner who has received mercy and grace. Father, as redeemed sinners ourselves, may we personally and as a church be unashamed to speak the truth, the message of our Savior to this lost and dying world filled with hopeless sinners. May our lives be a faithful testimony of trust and obedience, even in those areas of our lives hidden from public view, to bring eternal glory to the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.